Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm your host today, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. I'm going to still stay with that nickname. <laughs> and I hope you brought a flashlight, some gloves, and a sturdy stomach because we're talking true crime. That's not all. We're also talking about John Lennon, Mark David Chapman, The Beatles. Ever heard of them? <laughs> Uh, and yes, of course, our one and only master of horror, Stephen King. Uh, if you couldn't tell, it's a very special episode of Losers Club uh, that you've stumbled upon. And as we're wont to do here, we have a very special guest joining us. Uh, today, the Losers Club welcomes Disgraceland host Jake Brennan, who, believe it or not, knows a thing or two about murder and musicians. Uh, after all, he's dedicated the past two years of his life to the musical macabre, shedding a light on the sordid past of your favorite rockers, from Chuck Berry to Kurt Cobain, oh, my favorite, to so, <laughs> so many more. Uh, so he, here's one thing you might not know. He's also a constant reader. Uh, and that's why we thought it just made too much sense for us to do a crossover episode. <laughs> so today you'll get exactly that. Uh, but before we step into the stacks, you know me. Let's go around. Let's introduce ourselves because I'm not alone here in uh, this uh, the, the rickety ba- basement. Uh, there's a little <laughs> drip over there. But uh, down in Nashville, who goes there? This is Jen Music City Adams. And I'm <laughs> nice. switching it up today because we're talking about music. And I am in Music City right now. So, yay. Works out. It works out. <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I guess you could say I'm in a Music City, too, because I'm in Chicago. Yeah. So, uh, you know, home of the blues. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. anyway, uh Finally, our special guest, coming all the way from another music city, uh, but more importantly to us constant readers, uh, King's favorite baseball city. Uh, <laughs> Jake, how are you doing? I am Jake Brennan. I'm well. I am the girl who loved Tom Gordon. <laughs> oh, <Nice>. love it. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. That's a perfect uh, uh, segue because um, that uh, it's got the baseball link there. So, mm-hmm. um, you know. <laughs> well, look, th- Jake, thank you so much uh, for hopping on with us. And, I, you know, for our constant listeners, I kind of want to know a little bit more about you. Um, and let's just get right down to it. I mean, what kickstarted your fascination, you know, with true crime and especially in the musical mold? And how did that lead to Disgraceland? Uh, it's, it's a big question, first of <laughs> yeah, all. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Just going I'm, right uh, for the, the, the field. <laughs> um, first of all, I just want to say to all your your podcast subscribers all your listeners i'm psyched to be here i'm a fan of the show oh thanks i want to let your listeners know that if you hear some madness in the background it is not a um it is it it is it is not because of your lack of professionalism it has to be (laughs) my kids running around the back of this (laughs) old rickety house that i'm in right now um such as covid professional living right now oh it Um, is oh my god (laughs) but uh to answer your question which is how did i get into writing true crime and and fast being fascinated with music and all that stuff and you know i think like all of us whatever we're doing creatively now as adults it goes back to our formative years and for me it was like junior high era 
And, you know, when I was, I think when I was in the sixth grade, uh, that ACDC record, Who Made Who, came out, which was uh, part of the Maximum Over- Overdrive effort, <laughs> the film that <laughs> King had done. I had already been an ACDC fan, a huge ACDC fan, and a Stephen King fan. And when I found out that they were Stephen King's favorite band, my brain almost like just completely exploded inside of my ears. Um, I don't know what that had to do with, you know, writing true crime. And, you know, it's, I call Disgrace in a music and true crime podcast, but it's really a music podcast. Yeah, yeah. Happen to look at these musicians through the lens of the crimes they've either committed or have had committed to them. Um, you know, but on the other hand, I, I did read Helter Skelter at a very young age, which is kind of like one of, one of the first true, true crime books. And mm-hmm. I, I remember reading In Cold Blood, um, you know, in high school as well. And that was, that's all, I think that is like credited like as the first true crime book. And totally. I think that's where the, the term even came from. Um, so those two things, I, you know, I've always kind of been fascinated with, with that. And, you know, Stephen King as well has been, you know, I credit Stephen King with my love of reading. I mean, I, I was reading his books at a, an age that was way too early and completely inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. uh, with kids now, I can't imagine, you know, if my, my son starts reading like Cujo at age 10, what I'm going to be thinking of that totally. besides, besides <laughs> pride. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that that's a <laughs> peek into it. No, I, I think that, I think that's fair. I mean, I think for me, just even speaking personally on like that same level, th- it is it is interesting how so much of my own like musical fascination came from hearing about like I guess nowadays you'd call them like rock myths, just mm-hmm. because now you could just go on the internet and debunk a lot of the stuff. But growing up, it was kind of the the urban legends you'd hear on the playground, and then you know you'd go back and I'd ask my dad about it and be like, all right, well. You know, I'm from South Florida, so like one of the big early ones I heard early on was like, "Oh, you like the Doors? Well, he's a sexual pervert." And you know, my dad says that he pulled his dick out in Miami, and I'm like, "Wait, what?" And then you know, I'd go ask about it, and then my dad would have to like tell me his side of the story. So it was all, all this like oral history informing mm-hmm. it, but it all came from a place of like wanting to know about like the underbelly of society, you know? Yes. And, yes. and was, yeah. It's so strange uh, at how that mm-hmm. happens. Um, and well, I wonder why it's such a youthful thing, too. Like, if it just comes from my predilection of loving ghost stories, and I don't know, it's weird, but so much of music is intertwined with that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I, I definitely felt like it was a whole other world that was like this secret society where things happened that just seemed entirely extraordinary and my dad was in the music business he was a, music, is a musician and i remember asking him things or him just volunteering to tell me things and i would be like there's no way that's true and then he would like back it up or whatever and i'd go tell my friends and they of course wouldn't believe me and they'd think i was lying and like <laughs> like but it was that definitely had a had, that's that stuck with me and it's always caused me to kind of read and go a little bit deeper try to find some of this stuff out. Yeah, I feel like growing up in Nashville, I 
like there's the joke here is that the locals don't really love country music it's a lot of like the transplants is what we call them here and so I would always hear those stories about the musicians that everyone in the world loves and then oh you know but they're not so nice and like I live next door to them or they live down the street and you know they're kind of a jerk um with the exception of Dolly Parton who can do no wrong but so it was like I I remember reading Helter Skelter as well and I was a huge fan of the White Album and I was like holy shit this is not my Beatles what this this can't be you know even though that's not really they're not really related to that at all but it was just this really I think that's the natural extension is like as you get older you start I started to get more into music when I was like in middle school and high school and really started to form my own opinions about musicians and I already was in love with Stephen King and so it's just like those worlds start to collide and you start to kind of peel back the curtain you know yeah yeah Uh, well I mean I think also too it's so weird is that like one thing informs the other, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, there's so many books that, like, I, I feel like I found Bruce Springsteen through Stephen King, too, you know? Really? And then, uh, yeah. Which, which like, book? I think it was, um, I want to say The Stand, because oh. there's, there's uh, I believe it's references maybe to either Darkness in the Edge of Town or... Um, Oh God, they're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have like constant listeners just killing me for this. But like, I want to say it might be, it's not Nebraska because obviously that came later on, but there are definitely references to, you know, his works. And then also, um, I think, you know, like Larry Underwood was supposed to be modeled after Springsteen too. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you know, it was like this kind of gateway into it. I mean, but then again, I mean, it's like, like what Jenny was saying, like, it is so interesting to go back now and, you know, you like the Beatles, for example, like I think of the Beatles as like it's like almost like kindergarten, you know, music, like where you got, you're like, all right, well, I want to know about rock and roll. I want to know about popular music or you'll hear the Beatles. But then if you like go back and you like look at like some of their later lyrics and then also just even some of their context of like, you know, who they were individually, like probably not the best people to to like know and learn about when you're like five or six years old, which is kind of crazy in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. It's, it's weird too, because it's like, I, I think now of what's going on in like the, you know, the pop culture lexicon, like especially today um, where we look at musicians and we look at celebrities and there's this like insistence on them being like held to a higher regard. Um, and then there's always this like gas surprise, like that when they do something wrong, but it's like, I, I, I don't see why I think like the logical approach would be like, well, yeah, no shit. They're going to do something wrong. And they're like in their people, they're in positions of power. They're like, they're, they're mm-hmm. popular people. And that's one of the things I love about Disgraceland is that like, you don't pull your punches with that. Like, I mean, when I'm listening to some, like some of the, the detail about the musicians, like you're going to go out there and just say like, yeah, he's probably not a good guy, you know, like, or he's, you know, well, yeah, it's, it's often more, they're often maybe not a good guy, but also that's a, they're also a good guy at some point, you know, yeah. it's like they're, they're both the hero and the villain oftentimes. Exactly. And, and that is the friction of Disgraceland right there. And, and, you know, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, those guys came up at an entirely different time. Of course they did some crazy, completely fucked up shit. Like I was reading today actually that uh, John, John Lennon was on the hook to record a, a short, like, like, 30 second to 60 second jingle as part of an obligation for Apple core, the record label. Uh And uh, instead of actually, and it could have been anything, he could have like just, you know, picked up an acoustic guitar and like push play record on a mini recorder and just, it didn't have to be highly produced. 
And what he actually ended up send, sending to it, the company they were doing this for was the audio of his unborn child dying from the sonogram with Yoko Ono to the heart, like actually just fading out. Oh my! I mean, gosh. this completely fucked up stuff that yeah. these people did. And wow. I mean, that's, that's one thing, but then, you know, one, one of the things I came upon really quickly and I never met meant for disgrace land to be like this gotcha type of thing. Like oh, yeah, I no, no. know fully well who and what these musicians are. And, um, you know, one thing I tried to articulate early on and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to, or, or what people would, how they would respond to it was that oftentimes, you know, going back even further to like John Lennon's childhood was a disaster. You know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it, it's like, it, there's no wonder the guy behaved the way he behaved, you know, and I, I'm not, that's not to say that in the way of an excuse. It's just a fact when you're, mm -hmm. you know, when your dad abandons you and then your mom does, and then she dies and then, you know, you've got no one, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you're not going to grow up to be a, a functioning member of society in the same way that somebody else will. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and but that's the thing that's so that, that's the thing I do love, though, is the fact that like you can acknowledge there is a gray area. And that, and the thing that like frustrates me so much, in the, in, especially in the media right now, is that I feel like the world wants everything to be so black and white. And especially when it comes to like celebrities, like, you know, we're, we're this like sort of catch 22 system right now where we're like we're a society that's driven by celebrity worship. And yet we can't acknowledge that they're also just people <laughs> and mm -hmm. they have the same sort of gray area and nuances and wrinkles and skeletons in the closet that we all do. And if anything, the skeletons in the closet are going to be even more exacerbated just because of how much we worship them. And it's this weird, yeah. like snake eating the tail thing that has honestly been one of the more perplexing things in the, 15 years that I've been covering music and anything, any, anything in, in celebrity. But I feel like now, especially there's something about this era where it's just so hard for people to acknowledge that these people have issues and stuff like that. Yeah. And then instead of actually trying to understand it, I feel like the, 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 the most immediate response that people always do is just be like, ah, you know, like throw, you know, it's like Shirley Jackson's the lottery. Like who's going to take the next stone and throw this, you know, this person that's mm -hmm. in their head. Um, and so when you're working through, you know, all you know, through the past and stuff, I mean, is that, do you find yourself in those delicate waters a lot of the times where you're trying to like be a little bit more like, um, transparent, like with what they're doing and, and not like how, how, how hard is it to not like lay judgment on it? You know, when you're writing these episodes, I, I honestly try to just do it instinctually, whether I'm feeling it in the moment, like I was reviewing this David Bowie episode an hour ago before I got on with you. And, you know, I, I can't talk about this period in the 1970s of David Bowie without acknowledging the fact that he slept with a 15 year old. Like I just can't not bring it up, mm -hmm. you know? And even though it's not about the story itself, like, you know, David Bowie in the story I'm telling is on a path to a certain point and you know, Lori Maddox comes up at a certain point in that story, but she's not necessary to his path. But I feel now because of where we are in 2020, like it has to be mentioned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether or not I'm going to pass judgment or not, I, I don't know. I mean, it kind of at this point, I've done, you know, 70 or so episodes I've written, I've written almost 100. 
it, it's like, uh, you know, I just feel like I, 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 if I'm going to acknowledge it and it's not part of the story, I have to do it in a creative way. But mm -hmm. what I'm trying not to do is get bogged down in these like, like David Bowie's so much more than that part of his life. Jimmy Page is so much more than that part of his life. John Lennon is so much more than the shitty parts of his life, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's tricky to navigate. It's like, I, I don't want to present these guys as being angels and saints. Like, you know, frankly, like the world has presented them for the last, you know, half of, half of the mm -hmm. century. You know, some people can, and that's fine, but that's not what my show is because ultimately my show is about telling you the story of these guys through the fucked up things that happened in their lives, mm -hmm. the most dramatic things. And oftentimes things that have been overlooked um, definitely in podcasting, you know, but are make, make for great storytelling. So, and I am grateful for that because I feel like we do have a history of just erasing those things and it's not pleasant to talk about, but it's something that we need to talk about. And that's what ultimately starts the conversation. I'm not going to get out my soapbox on this, but like, it's like these, they're human beings. And when I think of John Lennon, like I just loved him for so long to the point where it was almost like a hero worship kind of thing. And then when I heard about a lot of the, the truth about his past, it it broke my heart and it was really hard for me to kind of reckon with that but now I think I've kind of moved past that hurt and said yeah but his music still really means a lot to me he also did terrible things and those two things can exist at the same time and I can make sense of that and that's what starts us down the road to like creating positive outcomes from things that have happened that are terrible in the past instead of just pretending they don't exist anymore right yeah. Yes, exactly. And he also did great things. He I did. Mean, yeah. He, I mean, some of his, did. yeah. And you know, I've got a, a John Lennon poster on my wall right behind me and it's he, like, he really means a lot to me, but he doesn't exist in a vacuum and he was a real person and, and we all are all are real people and we all do terrible things and we all do great things. So, right. and that, yeah. and that's kind of like the most important thing that I've the, the thing that that always drives me nuts and to the point of insanity in this job, you know, in running, you know, consequences, the, the fact that there just doesn't seem to be room for that sort of nuance sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, like and that's what I've, I've actually loved about the podcast medium so much is that you could have that room, you know, where I, I feel like there's this implied notion that text makes everything more black and white and that any nuance arguments are so much easier to kind of take out of context than actually just listening to conversations because I, some of the most, you know, provocative conversations and some of the more nuanced conversations as of late and, this, and by as of late, I, I would say like maybe the last three or four years have mostly been on podcasts. And I've, and I've, and I've heard a lot of people actually talk about, um, especially even like someone like Joe Bob Briggs, who's pretty outspoken, a lot, a lot of things. He's basically like, well, I think I get away with it because I could actually, you, you, you know, you're seeing me, you're hearing me. And by hearing me, you're actually listening to some of the more arguments. Whereas like, you know, if you're looking on text, you're going to see things and then you're going to run with it. Um, and I guess my concern, I guess I'll throw this a question out, is that <laughs> do you think we're ever going to get beyond that point like especially with online discourse where people just kind of run one way or the other to like you know throw judgment and be like all right that's it they're gone it's done i mean like there's so many celebrities out there that it becomes you know where there are already people are already starting to close the door on them based on things that happened like 30 or 40 years ago 
I mean, do we move pot past that? Are we do? I mean, is is, is it now we're going to just going to exist in a future where that that part of pop culture from that we used to celebrate just doesn't exist anymore? I mean, it's it's stuff that I've been sitting and thinking about probably a little too much lately. <laughs> I'm but, with you. I, I think about it a lot. My wife and I talk about it a lot. I worry, you know, on the one hand, I worry that because of the way that media is, celebrity, Twitter, yeah. politics that we are, there's an entire generation of people coming up who uh, will be incapable of thinking with any nuance, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And because it, it w it's not so much as required of them in the public discourse, which is super scary. But I also think that um, it's unnatural to behave that way from a human element. And we are evolving as a species and maybe our, we're not evolving emotionally uh, at the speed that our technology is evolving and that's creating some of the friction, but I feel like we will. And I feel like there's a pendulum that always swings mm -hmm. and, and people at the end of the day, you know, I know what a bastard Mick Jagger was. It's not going to stop me from listening to sticky fingers, you know, there's yeah. just like, and I feel like, <laughs> most people feel that way and yeah um at some level and you know it's it it's unsustainable and i think a, a lot of it a lot of that sort of like judgment and lack of humility comes from a lack of maturity and and the way people are online isn't necessarily the way people are in their heart i i'd like mm -hmm. to think that maybe i'm naive but that's <laughs> what i like to think and finally i'll just say like you know, we can choose whether or not we want to participate in the conversation that they're having. And yep. from my standpoint, I just choose not to participate in it. I, I don't really look at Twitter. I don't really, um, you know, I, I follow politics, but I don't follow it in the same way that the rest of the world, the country does at this point, because it's toxic and gaming us. And, you know, I think most people are just going to get sick of all this and they're going to find their own avenues for information and how they interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think along those lines, like we can choose if if this thing that I found out about this musician that I loved is too much for me, I can choose not to listen to their music anymore. Or I can choose to kind of wrestle with it and then maybe not listen to it every day like I was. And it's, I think a lot of it just comes down to personal experience based or personal decisions based on our experience, which is what being human is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that really draws me to Stephen King is I think that his he writes his characters with really great nuance. And I think he really cares about even his villains um, and in a way that kind of lets me understand them as human beings rather than just like cut and dry good guys and bad guys. Right. And so when I think about when he writes about musicians, like I feel like he uses lyrics throughout to kind of set tones oh, totally. and as like chapter headings. But um, the two things that stick out to me, because he clearly loves music, but he's written about, in The Stand, he wrote about Jim Morrison and Stu kind of running into him at a gas station by himself. And he also wrote in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, he wrote the story, you know, they've got a hell of a band, which is all about rock and roll heaven and these dead musicians like trapping unsuspecting travelers and like just playing for them for like concerts that go on for years, which <laughs> but, and it's fascinating to me, like how 
he writes about them with like this sinister air, you know, and there's almost something like kind of scary about them. Now, I mean, he's writing about people that are deceased, so there, there's the ghost angle. But totally, ha- yeah. you know, have you found with Disgraceland that it's caused you to kind of look at any of these artists in a different way or really kind of change your views? Or has there been anyone where you say, you know what, this might just be too much. And I think I'm I'm just moving away from that person. Yeah, I think I, to follow up a little bit on what you were saying there, I think I think Stephen King gets gets it on a level where rock stars should be dangerous. You know, you mm, should not mm-hmm. be comfortable around them. You should feel like this guy's either going to get me pregnant or steal my wallet. You know, <laughs> that's, that's what a good rock star should give off. Uh-huh. You know? you don't you don't want your rock stars babysitting for you and and i think stephen king gets that and yeah for sure i mean i i'm constantly um you know because i'm reading so much about these guys i'm constantly having my opinions as well i mean i i know so much of their stories to begin with but they're constantly changing based on what i'm reading you know i'm reading a book right now on the beatles a book by peter brown who worked for them for years and it's really critical of Paul McCartney. And every morning after I get done reading, I come downstairs and I say to my wife, I'm like, Paul McCartney, fucking savage. You know? Oh, <laughs> man, no. And you, know, you don't think of that because, you know, he's pushing 80 years old right now. And he's, you know, he's, he's got that face, you know? Yeah. 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 I think, you know, one of the great rock and roll conspiracy slash myths uh, slash urban legends that doesn't get enough play is that, I think there's a case to be made that Paul McCartney is Angela Lansbury. Like it, <laughs> he does look just like him or just like her. Oh my God. That's so true. It's wow. the, it's the mouth. It I is. Think. Yeah, exactly. And those doughy eyes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh God. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, growing up, I actually, uh, just because like I was saying before, like it's those myths that drew me in. When I heard about the Paul is dead myth, like I remember oh. like for there was a good like five months, if not longer, where I actually thought that was like legit real. Yeah. And this is around the time that he was doing like, you know, the appearances on SNL and, you know, he'd be like ch- hamming it up with like Chris Farley. And I remember as a kid, just like I vividly remember like as a kid, like sitting in my living room being like, what if that's not him? <laughs> like, wow, you were deep in, man. <laughs> I told you. I, and I think a lot of it also is because like I'm – so I, God, how old am I? 30, 37 this next year. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot. The quarantine hey. just totally took a time away. So whatever. It um, happens. Also an age thing, man. The older you get, the, you know, the, the harder the it is. To remember. Remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. it is. It is. And I just, I grew up in the era of like, you know, JFK, uh, the, you know, the Oliver Stone movie and like, yeah. you know, um, and also like, you know, the, the, the X-Files especially. And, you know, that was like a huge thing. So it was like, this whole idea of like trust nothing and trust no one was all mm-hmm. on my mind. So like when people yeah. would tell me it's like, you know, oh, all these other things like, um, you know, if you go back, if the the Beatles records backwards, you know, you, you have the, you know, this and that and like, you know, Black Sabbath does this and like, you know, Ozzy Osbourne ate ahead. I would just be like, I totally believe it. Yeah. You know, but like, and it's crazy. Like, and, and in hindsight, I realized how like toxic that, 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 that sort of mentality is, especially like, not to get political, but in the current age we're living in right now, where mm-hmm. misinformation is just all over the place. Yeah, you know. Um, but I, but on that note, you know, I didn't have Twitter, I didn't have Reddit, and I didn't have all these other things. And going into the internet age, I came up with the I came with the mindset saying like, all right, well, all these things that I knew, 
I could find and debunk immediately. And it's funny that, you know, I, I mentioned the X-Files uh, pointedly because, <laughs> you know, a few years ago I had a chance to, to actually interview Chris Carter and I said, God, it's got to be hard to write these X-Files episodes now uh, because every, anyone could find information. And he goes, no, actually, it's easiest because there's too much information and now it's misinformation. And mm. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is a true. So when you're looking back at all of these artists and all of this information, how hard is it now to actually decimate like what is real, what is not, what is a good source? You know, it's yada, pretty. Yada, yada, it's yada. not. It's not that hard. It's. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're you're from yeah, what you yeah. do. You know, you know what is uh, reputable. You know, you know, it would be harder for me if I was coming at this completely flat-footed. If I knew nothing about music or music history, and I was, mm-hmm. I have to spend, you know like you know a day figuring out if peter brown was credible but i know immediately that peter brown is credible to write a book on the beatles and then mm-hmm. you know it's from there it's just like finding where the personal bias is in an author and seeing what's survived and in in the popular narrative and there's the the great thing is though it's like you know the one thing that media today has not destroyed and i i, I don't actually know how to articulate this but this is part of the success of Disgraceland is that like you know i'm not telling stories that are unknown i mean this mm-hmm. this stuff is mm-hmm. all out there and there's something about like you know like that that story i told you earlier about john lennon and the and the dying unborn baby right like that's been published now since like 1982 or whatever mm-hmm. you know what i mean but yeah. you put it in a podcast yep. that's truncated it's down to a 30 minute podcast that's part of this like this specific story you're telling and it becomes bigger in this way mm-hmm. you know it's like it's like it, the medium shines a different sort of light on it that that gives it more power or something i can't put, i don't know what it is but um you know to answer your question it's not hard to find the info and i think one of the things that, that we're not accounting for here in this conversation about this is the power of um the listener or the audience and I include myself in this when I'm consuming media, the power of suspended disbelief yeah. and, mm-hmm. or suspended belief. It's when you're, you know, I mean, I, I released these April fool's episodes. I don't know if you, if you, if you're, mm-hmm. yeah. this, but I, you know, this entire like 50 minute episode on how Jim Morrison was the Zodiac killer. <laughs> and it like, it went, like wildflower. I woke up that morning at like 7 a.m. My phone was like, like, please help me. It was just exploding. <laughs> and there were, it freaked me out. It like totally freaked me out. And I took the episode down because I started worrying about like, you know, victims and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And anyways, I, I, not to mention the fact there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the episode yeah, that says crazy. that it's satire, right? Mm-hmm. That anyone can pick up their phone and start start Googling whether or not this is true, which some people did. And, but the thing is, if you Google Jim Morrison, Zodiac killer, you're actually going to get returns that say that he is because it's out there and the internet is crazy. So insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it further reinforces it. And then, you know, I did it again a year later claiming that John Denver killed John F. Kennedy and it worked <laughs> again. It totally worked. And it's still working every day. I get, emails and text messages and, and Instagram messages from people who are just now catching up to this stuff. Mm-hmm. And they, now it's even worse better because it's not, it's not April 1st, you know, so it's, it's wild. So mm-hmm. it's just like, we will, it's like 
you know, I watch Friends every night to like, I'm a Seinfeld guy, but I watch Friends at the end of the <laughs> night with my wife to sort of like detox. It's just mm-hmm. stupid and I'll fall asleep. And yeah, and like, I, yeah, I was telling her, I was like, we totally just suspend the fact that this is completely unrealistic and we're, yeah. we're sucked into this narrative. That's not a coffee shop there. <laughs> it's completely unrealistic that that's New York City. Yeah, Yet, right. It's the most popular TV show of all time. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Crazy. I think that's part of the power of true crime is people want to hear a story that makes them afraid and that also kind of reassures them for where they are, you know, and like, I feel like we're obsessed with true crime right now. And I actually had had to back away a little bit, but I feel like when there because it was just too much and it's like, this is making me nervous for my kids. But what I find is when there's an element of celebrity there, when it's a musician, when I know maybe it's that there's a little bit of privilege or just a remove from my life, like I don't have that much much money I don't I'm not going on tour you know it's removed and so I still kind of get that that like true crime buzz that I'm looking for where it's mm-hmm. almost kind of like a story you know um yeah. and King keeps writing about true crime like a lot of his most recent stuff it's not true crime but it's like trying to catch that wave you know like he wrote The Outsider and then the Hodges trilogy and it seems like he's really obsessed with it too you know? even 11 I mean that yeah I don't That's, think of that as a true crime, but it is, you know, yeah. and that probably has the most research heavy of many of the things he's written. Amazing. What'd you guys think of that show? Oh, loved it. I, <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's crazy because, you know, you read that book and there's literally like 300 pages dedicated to a guy just in a room watching someone. And yeah. I'm like, and I remember like, they're like, all right, we're going to adapt it. I was like, mm. oh, fun. Like, mm. can't wait to watch James Franco sitting yeah. in a, you know, an apartment for, you know, three months. But I thought they did a really interesting job being able to kind of take those chapters and, you know, creating another character to absorb it and all. But, um, you know, I it's I, I had really heightened expectations for it just because I think it's one of King's best works of all time. Mm-hmm. Um and I thought I was pleasantly surprised, but what did you think? What do you... I, I actually, I, you're going to kill me. I started it and <laughs> I fell off. It was right. I, it was right around the time we had our first child. Mm. So my TV watching habits were completely disrupted, but we just <laughs> rewatched. Um, uh, we just watched the first two seasons of Castle Rock. And now this, oh, we're going to go back and watch 11, 22, 63. But oh, Castle wow. Rock is actually filmed in my home. Season two is yeah. filmed in my hometown. Town oh, I wow. Grew up in, or parts of it are Clinton Mass, like the the Glorium Emporium is literally on the street I grew up on, um, Main Street in Clinton, Massachusetts. And then um, that scene, like there's a a bridge right next to the Glorium Emporium. And there's a scene, I think it's the finale where they run across the tracks. That Mm -hmm. exact spot is where I got drunk for the first time in my life. Oh my wow. God. <laughs> I kid you, I, there's like not an ounce of exaggeration in that. It's like that exact spot on those train tracks. That's um, awesome, wow. Uh, yeah, so watching that was a complete trip and oh just amazing series. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that first season um, for me, I, I was just, we dedicated like a week to week episode recaps for that. So I got really obsessed with it where I was just mm-hmm. like analyzing every detail. But I, I found myself just like hungering, like there was like a yearning to like be in that like that small town atmosphere. Because I'm I'm from I'm from Miami, so the smallest town I've ever lived in really it was like Tallahassee, which technically isn't even really a small town either. It's like a small city. So like I've never really had that small town charm, but I've always loved the idea of just like escaping to that. 
Um, mm. But then I, I've, you know, I, I talk to people that are from small towns and they're like, what are you fucking nuts? Like it's, it's <laughs> there's nothing to do here. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny, uh, you know, after binging those recently, listening to your show, I was recently listening to one of the episodes you did on pet cemetery. And I was thinking about it. I live in an old new England house that was built in 1865 oh, in the wow. small town north of Boston. I'm a middle-aged guy who writes for a living. I'm <laughs> kind of like, I was like, oh my God, I'm living in a Stephen King novel. Yeah, <laughs> you <wow>. are. Hey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, watch out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, do you live near a busy road? Because if so, right. like don't the kids can't play cat. outside. I do. Don't even say that. But yeah, it's true. Oh, it's, oh God. Yeah. Are, hey, are there any uh, Stephen King significance uh, to, is there any significance to the number 37? You know, 237 is the closest I could think of. That's it. And what is that? What is that? What is that there? That's the room in the, well, they changed oh, the, oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. originally 217 in the book for the shining, but in the movie, uh, I guess they had to change it to 237 because I think the hotel at the time was just, no, we don't want They didn't it. want so, people so. to not want to stay in their haunted room. Gotcha. Their gotcha, haunted yeah. room. And of course it ended up being that way. About, with the same name is a document. Yeah. yeah room yeah. 237. Room yeah. 237. Okay. Well, that's very interesting because we have this phantom bell chime sound in our house that we discovered when we moved in two years ago we couldn't place where it was coming from it's so spooky it's the same sound every time oh wow! It oh away. my god <laughs> it went away in the last two months it's come back with a fucking vengeance so we've been trying to figure out what it is and my wife has been keeping a record of it it goes off at the 37th minute of every hour not every hour, but most every hour. We keep oh a lot. Oh my lock. god! And we and we. That's hear. insane. <laughs> that would that would creep me out to know it. I mean, it sounds like uh, it could be like um not to get really nerdy with the dark with a uh, dark tower. It could be like a thinny, <laughs> mm -hmm. and you could have like a portal somewhere in your house or something like that that's like calling to you or something. Wow. Um, yeah, because we can't tell where it's coming from exactly. Yeah, it could be mm. shifting. <laughs> Roughly in one area of the house, but not entirely. It's nuts, man. Nuts. Uh, wow. I see that. Th I love that too because um. I I just I'm a I'm a huge believe I mean clearly I already admitted that I believe a lot of other things but um <laughs> when it comes to ghosts I'm pretty dead I'm pretty dead serious about it I've I lived in a very old apartment here in Chicago um and it was it was haunted I mean it, it was I I say that with the utmost conviction because at the time my ex-wife uh when she started dating I didn't tell her about the stuff that I was experiencing. Cause I was like, all right, I want to be her to be able to come over to my house and not be fucking scared. And so I didn't tell her anything. And then one morning she woke up and we woke up and she was just like, you're never going to believe me, but I saw, and then she just proceeded to describe the ghost. And I was like, yep, that's the thing I saw. And so that's when I was like, okay, I, I absolutely am convinced that like this, there's something there. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a ghost. I don't know if it's energy, whatever. I believe it. So anytime I'm in historic areas, I'm obsessed with knowing like like what's going on in the history. And you said 1865 or 1865. Yeah. Yep. I also have, this is weird. Actually, check this out. Can you see this? Yeah. This, okay. So the guy who built this house in 1865 was a clockmaker. Okay. Can you see that clock on my wall? Oh, uh -huh. wow. Yeah. Can you see, wow. The, the, can you see that the, the door has swung open? <gasps> that is crazy. The oh door gosh. swings open now, like every couple times a day. We, I hook it shut every time. We have no idea why. And then my stepdad was over and he was looking at some of these documents of the house. My stepdad, my stepdad re, uh, refinished that clock. And he's looking at some of the house documents, historical documents. He's like, you know, a clockmaker, 
made this house. So his theory is that he's pissed that we're here, so he keeps opening the clock. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, That's... oof. That is first off, you, you are living in a Stephen King novel. Like this is <laughs> absolutely happening. He needs to go back and write a ghost. Like like Jen was saying, he's too obsessed with true crime. He needs to go back and uh, and, and <laughs> right. write a ghost story based on all of this. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, look, if you're hearing what sounds like an, like a, a bell, the yeah. clock. Maybe maybe he is doing that. Maybe he is playing with you a little bit. Uh, look, here I am. Are you just <laughs> indulging this ghost story? Your disbelief story. is completely suspended. Ridiculous, ridiculous. Uh, well, hey, we're talking about spooky, so let's let's geek out about King uh, a little yes. bit. Yeah. You know, um, what are your earliest memories of King? You know, was it a book that you read? Was it the movies? Um, was it just the name? I mean, you're if you're in the New England area, I imagine it's just it, you're kind of given to it yeah. as a kid. <laughs> it was, um, you know, the movies. I, I definitely didn't see Carrie until later in life. And I think the first book, the first book that like crushed me when I was a young kid that killed me was Pet Cemetery. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not sure if I read that first. It might've been like Salem's Lot um, and then Pet Cemetery or, or vice versa. I'm not exactly sure. And then I just went, it was like Cujo, Carrie, all those early ones. Um, but different seasons really, really blew me away because I didn't expect, it didn't even feel like Stephen King to me. Mm-hmm. And then all those things started to become movies as well. And mm-hmm. it was like, I mean, people didn't even really know, I know it sounds weird, like, you know, people didn't even really know that Stand By Me was a Stephen King oh, no. thing. Yeah, you know? no, they tried to couch it. I mean, because at the time he was like a monster, you know, right. the, the master right. of horror, and they didn't want that. Like, it was kind of like, eh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And Which, then, you know, Who Made Who was a big deal, but that uh, Maximum Overdrive kind of tanked as a film. I yeah. I, and it was right around, well, I guess it was after, no, it was the same year. I think Maximum Overdrive came out the same year as Stand By Me. So they probably were really at that time, like, all right, right. get him, <laughs> get him out of here. <laughs> right. You know, right. I think, though, you know, somebody asked me uh, like two years ago, like right when I released Disgraceland, and it's funny, I've never written anything before Disgraceland. You know, I never considered, I'm just now coming around to the fact after, you know, publishing a book and writing a bunch of episodes of a podcast that I am a writer and I've never identified as that. And someone asked me, you know, what influences, what influenced you as a kid to become a writing, a writer? What do you hear in your, or what do you read in your writing that, that, you know, you identify as an early influence? And I immediately thought of, well, will from from the body telling the story of the pie eating contest mm-hmm. whether or not it was actually the book version or the movie version it's something about the way that he tells that story that voice the cadence of it it's always in my head when i'm writing and when i'm depicting something in Disgraceland, i hear that the way that sort of like natural like i'm here and i'm telling you this story and yeah. then this happened and then mm-hmm. this happened and then this and it's just it just like it gripped me then i didn't realize it but it's it's still got me you know and nothing else has it's weird because I, I if i recall growing up i think that might have been like the first introduction for me with like the idea of voiceover or like the narrator you know like like the personification of a narrator because i mean you get to see him as an older man and then he becomes the kid and i think as a kid that that what similarly like just molded in my mind like oh okay because I, that's what I think of. Like when I think of narrator, that's the first person I go to. Also, um, yeah. and 
and it is and i think a lot of it also is just because it's the hook of a kid you know like i'm you know growing up i was like oh there's four bratty kids that smoke and i'm doing that with my friends so i'll go watch right. this movie yeah. um yeah but well and i think like with his style too like i do a lot of audiobooks and so i haven't read oh, wow. an actual stephen king book in a long time because i just listen to him over and over again um, and his narrative, like his prose just flow really well. And it's like, it's like another kind of music, you know, it's just like the, mm -hmm. the, the melody of it. And like the, the way that it flows is just so soothing and like engrossing to me. And it's, I just love it. Yeah. And sometimes I'm listening to it and I'm like, holy shit, this is really scary, but I'm just kind of along for the ride and I'm kind of in the channels of it, you know, and I don't really think like, I forget, I really forget that it has a clown in it a lot of times because oh, totally. I'm just like involved in the story and I'm just so engrossed in the characters and that's such a book about friendship but when you think about Stephen King what is it I know you mentioned Pet Cemetery, which is the one that scares me the most but what do you think is the scariest or what is it about his work that really scares you um I think you know I, I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago you know I, I when I think I have to think about what scared the the child version of me versus, <laughs> versus now yeah yeah and i i think he just does a tremendous this is going to sound like a cop out of an answer because it's so vanilla but i think he he does a tremendous job of humanizing the 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 hero in the book who is who is being scared witless mm -hmm. and and not just in not just from a character standpoint but from a, a, a tone and everything about him i, I remember I remember having a conversation as a kid with my dad's uh, girlfriend at the time about how <laughs> I must have been like 12. And I was like, you know, Stephen King really describes smells really good. <laughs> it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that like it gives you the sense of hyper realism where you're in it and you're not even realizing you're in it. And then you're mm -hmm. just set up to be scared shitless at that point. You know, mm -hmm. but, you know, Jen, we were talking about that in the Green Mile episodes recently that I was saying that, you know, and you mentioned, uh, you know, different seasons. And I think he writes drama the best. I think that's mm -hmm. honestly like the, the real subversion on us is the fact that he's just a He's, great he's not a horror writer. He's, he's not. not. He's yeah. not. Just like I was telling my wife this. I was like, I'm not a true crime writer. I'm a music. I write about music. Yeah. Stephen yeah. King didn't write horror. He wrote yeah. drama. He just needed to sell it. So yeah. it mm -hmm. became horror, you know? Yeah. 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 Or sci-fi. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that, and that's honestly, I think, why he's able to hook us in, you know? Yep. Um, and, and because you it, care about his characters. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. 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 Well, what uh, beyond King, though, like, what ultimately does scare you? Like, you'd, you'd mention, you know, there uh, there's definitely a ghost in your house that's playing with your <laughs> clock. Um, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. But does that scare you, or is are you more scared of, like, the real world things? Uh, you know, like, maybe the crimes that you're talking about in the pod? <laughs> Uh, another vanilla answer. I'm scared to death of death. Having a kid really made me feel uh, my mortality. And I, I, I work on this nightly. I, I read to sort of uh, satiate my curiosity about death and spirituality and phenomena and different worlds and the astral plane and all that. And I won't bore you with all that, but that is a real fear that I'm actually working on. Um, I'm trying to think of like visceral fear that, uh it gets me and you know i mean i guess just coyotes <laughs> i got coyotes <laughs> in the neighborhood they kill geese and it's uh scary. it's it's horrific sounding man and we, mm -hmm. we hear it often here mm -hmm. um but yeah the, the ghost the ghost thing is legit you know the ghost thing 
it can, can get really, really frightening here. In New yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to, if there's if anything else, there any further developments, I, I got to know uh, down the road <laughs> because I'm so obsessed with that shit. And it's weird because I, I moved into an apartment in Wrigleyville where I, because my previous apartment just happened to be in like a hotbed, I found out because I was doing research and stuff and I, I got a degree in history. So of course my son's like, at the time I was coming off of that. So I was like, got to hit the books. And uh, so I was like, <laughs> yeah. all right, so what happened here? And I was like, oh, they buried... They had a Civil War cemetery nearby and um, they removed the graves like every other horror movie from the 80s. And then down the street, the St. Valentine's Day massacre happened. And then down the street from there was John Dillinger being shot. And then this place was a hotel formerly. I was like, okay, there's at least like 10 reasons. So great. But, um, you know, it's anyway that that's where I'm at with uh, with that. So I'm always just, uh, uh, you know, obsessed with that. But um, and again, I'm so it's like I'll read something and there's something about my mind that just kind of takes over. And if I hear just enough of the truth of it, um, it's just going to become this seed in my head that a part of me acknowledges that like, okay, you grew this yourself, but then there's also a part that's like, it's, it, but it, but it does kind of add up. And also wouldn't it be more exciting if this was the well, case? Yeah. Did you grow it yourself or are you just allowing yourself to perceive what is the truth? Yeah. And there's this, um, a friend was telling me about, um, no, he wasn't. It was actually, it wasn't weird. I do this other podcast called Dead and Gone, and it's about mm-hmm. missing Grateful Dead fans. And Dennis McNally, who is uh, the Grateful Dead's biographer, in one of the episodes had told us, he's talking about Aldous Huxley, who wrote The Doors of Perception. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the theory that, like, if you see a flower, you're like, oh, it's a pretty flower. If you see a flower on LSD, you're like, oh, my God, the heavens have opened up. This is Mm -hmm. the most beautiful thing I've seen. Right. And and I guess what LSD does chemically to your brain to enable that is sort of um, allow your your inhibitors to to kind of fall away so that you have this different perception. Now, where that comes from is like, you know, gazillions of years ago, cavemen are walking down the street and they see a flower and because their brain has yet to evolve the way that ours has, has influenced by fear and everything else, they, then they saw the flower and they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. But then a saber toothed tiger comes along and devours them. So mm-hmm. the, the fear thing prevents them per, from having the perception that they, their brain wants, wants humans to have. And then a gazillion years later, it gets completely sucked out of us as we evolve. And maybe what is happening to you <laughs> is, <laughs> is you've got this sort of willingness to perceive things and perceive phenomena in a way that doesn't mean that it's false. It just means you, you've opened yourself up to it and the rest yeah. of the world could indeed be false. And I think there's something to that. I really, really, truly mm-hmm. do. Oh, I, I, do I agree. I agree. And that's actually a perfect seg to <laughs> the main event that I wanted to discuss because uh, look, Jake, we've been trying to make this episode happen for a few weeks now, but the th- it's kind of perfect. And the stars did align because this past week, you know, it's tragically marked, uh, you know, the 40th anniversary of um, John Lennon's death. And um, I believe it was the 40th anniversary, I think. Yeah. It was. Um, yeah. So and, 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 and yeah, and I, and I know you've covered this in the past, but I wanted to know if uh, you knew about this Kenyan, Kenyan link uh, because it's a wild theory. It's one that we've actually talked about on this podcast because a constant listener brought it up one time during our mailbag bag of bones episode. And I remember sitting there just being like, like what? And so the gist is that there's this guy named Steve Lightfoot 
And he actually believes that it was Stephen King who killed John Lennon and not Mark David Chapman, who has admitted to it. But uh, he's dedicated most of his life to this theory. He has a website. He has letters. He even has a van, he has a van. That, <laughs> that promotes it. And it looks like the van from like Back to the Future that drives around. It's like Mayor Goldie Wilson. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of wild. But I want to read his theory because it's so I get a headache when I try to like actually understand where his logic is coming on here. But I, he, he to, you know, hey, to his credit, he gives a great summation. So um, <laughs> he basically this is what's on his website um, in the midst of a ton of other clutter. The story about Mark David Chapman is a cover up. Bold print government cryptographic codes that include the killer's face and true identity. The killer's alleged name and letter the editor printed before the murder and Richard Nixon's book, The Real War, in back issues of Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News and World Report magazines printed before, during, and after the night of December 8, 1980, that prove that Richard Nixon <laughs> and Ronald Reagan arranged for the author Stephen King, then barely famous, which actually isn't true at all, sorry, um, yeah. to assassinate John Lennon. That King's writings draw dramatically from the crime and that he taunts us all in his interviews and comments only makes this story of a lifetime. Makes this a story of the lifetime. My 24-page booklet contains everything you've seen here and much more. Please order your copy. I guarantee is the absolute truth of what, what happened to John Lennon. Happy code cracking. Now, mm, it's that again, sales pitch that's the clincher. Yeah, that's really a good one right there. And also, right. you know, it's, it's always a... A nice red flag when you have uh, codes and, and whatnot dotted into, you know, uh, various headlines of magazines and publications that would have no reason to exacerbate uh, a murder mystery. But uh, anyway, what do you make of this? And have you heard about this theory before in the past? I'm I have heard about it. To me, uh, this guy's fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> all, like, I put no stock in this. Uh, yeah. It says nothing to do with Huxley's uh, walls of uh, doors of perception. I think um, <laughs> this guy's nuts. I think that I read all this stuff, all the, the whole, everything you just referred to. First of all, he should have a life coach because the fact that he only got 24 pages out of this yeah. and a booklet and didn't actually get a book that he could sell to some hack publisher. Um, he's doing a disservice to his, bottom line in his bank account but <laughs> i think i think the interesting thing here is that there is a resemblance between stephen king and mark david chapman there is, from yeah. 1980 which is which is really interesting um on its face and there's also a thing where you guys probably know this where stephen king thinks he met mark david chapman mm -hmm. at one point you guys know that i didn't is, yeah. know that no yeah he thinks he met him online at some book signing in the in new york i believe um, but that's been kind of refuted because I think at the time Chapman was living in, in Honolulu. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, I say, you know, good for this guy, more power to the, <laughs> the grist to the conspiracy mill, you know, as, as if John Lennon's assassination isn't bad enough. <laughs> yeah, right. Jesus. Right. Yeah. But I, but I, I brought up the, in a seg with the perception being, because I wondered, you know, like with me with the Gus and the, with me seeing and enabling myself, why do you think it is? that celebrities and especially musicians make it so easy for people to come up with shit like this. Like, what is it about? Is it just celebrity in general? I, I don't know. It's, it's odd. Like you couldn't do this with some random person around the corner. I mean, it's just, um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I think maybe in part because there's their lives are so they're, they're like half lived and there's breadcrumbs and all of their lyrics and we don't really have a full picture of them. Um, the Lennon thing, people hated John Lennon. We forget, you know, Nixon, I believe, truly did hate John Lennon. 
Um, Ronald Reagan, I don't think really cared. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think people, musicians are more interesting than actors. They're more interesting than politicians. They live different lives. They're more secretive. We know less about them. And maybe it just mm -hmm. allows for more conspiracy. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's odd too. Cause it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like this, the more popular the artist, the more wild the theories, I guess. Yeah. And, and I guess it, in a, in a sense, it's like, you almost create these as like a game in your head. And then like, I don't know. It's weird. I, when you were, when you were going through, you know, each episode, do you come across a lot of these wild theories all the time? Like, and, and how, how much time do you take with them? Or do you usually just go, all right, get, I'm moving away from this crap. Like, <laughs> I, I try to not spend time if I know they're not true, because then I'm going to have like a credibility thing, unless yeah, I'm doing like a, a satire thing, like the Morrison um, piece, or I'll reference it as, as it wasn't true. And, and oftentimes there's enough real life stuff that happens that can be dramatized and brought to life in a podcast that is just as crazy as some of these conspiracy theories, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, that to me is more interesting. Like that's the grit of it. And that that's the interesting stuff to me rather than the actual conspiracy side. Yeah. You know, yeah. But I'll entertain it. I mean, I'm going to dive in full on and figure out if Sammy Davis Jr. really was a Satanist. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. Why not? I mean, exactly. like, like you say, it's the type of stuff that, it, it, it's funny because on the description, you know, for this, the, the pot, it's something that I've always taken to heart with uh, actually any time I'm writing is that I don't really want to come off as like someone that's talking down and, and basically, you know, speaking to you as like, this is fact, this is fact, drill it. Mm -hmm. I want to come at you as more conversational. And like, you know, I, I always use the bar analogy. It's like if we're going to be like, I'd like to have conversations that you could have those great conversations you usually have over a drink that goes on for three more drinks or four more drinks. And all of a sudden you're like, we're solving the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, th and that seems so much more inviting to me than most of the time. But I mean, you do have to kind of toe that line when you're dealing with information sometimes, but you know. Well, yeah. the conspiracy, when I think about 11-22-63, and I know King has talked about what he thinks happened there, and I'm not going to spoil the book, but um, it, he's talked about how it is scarier that it's just one guy who was just happened to be there and that so much of the world could depend on the actions of this, this one uh, lunatic or this one guy who just decided to do a terrible thing. And that's kind of like when I look at this Mark David Chapman thing, like is it easier for us to believe that it was a grand design because thinking that it's just one person who made this terrible choice is just too scary for us. So we've got to try to like package it in a way that our minds can understand and kind of try to chip in because it just seems a little more controllable, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's absolutely the case with Oswald. I think it's so big. It has to be explained as a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I have a conspiracy theory about conspiracy theories that pertains to Oswald. And, I, you know, it's like people always come at this from the perspective of a bunch of guys got in a room and made some decisions and then put a plan mm -hmm. into action. And then the thing happened and then they covered it up. And I don't think that's how conspiracies happen. I think conspiracies happen when there are there are multiple there's, there's one energy driving different things at the same time that are all kind of going towards the same end and they don't even realize they're doing, they're, they're going to the same place until they're actually there at the last minute. And by then they have so much invested into whatever they're trying to do that they do it. And I think that's yeah. what happened. Um, I think that's what happened with Kennedy. Yeah. With, with Lenin, I think just 
fucking tragic, man. Just yeah. tragic. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's like, that reminds me of Fargo in a lot of ways. Cause I feel like mm-hmm. what that show is, is one or two bad choices that just get like a snowball that keeps rolling downhill. And it just, before you realize that you're in way over your head and that's where the conspiracy comes from, because it's, it's harder. It seems like it's harder to just get yourself out and walk away. And so you just keep following that trail to disaster. Right. And it's, and it's right. almost like a weird Chekhov's gun sometimes too when i feel mm-hmm. like with, with with a lot of these theories because it's like if one little piece is just substantial enough everyone has to just harp on it as if like well this exists for a reason and it's like well sometimes it doesn't like sometimes it's yeah. just there and i don't know it's i think there's a lot of that with the kennedy thing though man yeah like, oh totally yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, I want to know why George Bush was there. There's a yeah. picture of the guy there. Yeah. There is, you know, George Bush was there. Lyndon Johnson was there. Richard Nixon was there. Those are three future presidents that are yeah. all in Dallas mm-hmm. on the day the other president is shot. That seems like something people should talk about. And it's not like it's like, it's not like it's a theory. It's like there's mm-hmm. facts, facts. There's yeah. records that back it up, you know? Oh yeah. yeah. No, I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I mean, I got run out of, uh, the, the college when I proposed this, but, um, back when I was actually trying to teach for a little, I had a whole course that was drawn up on like conspiracies in the, in modern myths. And, um, <laughs> and a lot of it was based on the idea that, you know, so much of it was going to be talking about the notions of, you know, the theories that are going into JFK because it, for that, for that very reason also is just like, how can you not indulge those? Because mm-hmm. there, there's just so many what ifs. And it's like, and that's the most dangerous question I think that could plague mankind really is the what if, right. um, you know, and it's led to so many certain crises, um, not to mention how many mental health disorders from that. But right. um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something that's always just going to fascinate me no matter how much it gets debunked. I mean, like I, I've talked about this on this podcast, but like, you know, growing up, I hated watching Three Men and a Baby because there's. <laughs> I was told that there was a ghost in it, and then when I found out that there was that kid that's standing behind the curtain, I would be terrified of it. And then, you know, years later, I found out it's a, it's a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson, and I know that it's mm-hmm. a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson now, and I've seen the images that show the how it is a cardboard cutout, but it still doesn't change the fact that whenever I watch it, I still get creeped out, and I still build the thing in my head, and I think that kind of sums it up of um, why theories and conspiracies and yada 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 are just going to always continue but right. yeah you know um well hey it's time to leave the stacks it's time to <laughs> toss out our gloves and it's time to head back to our offices uh jake i want to thank you so much for joining the club i had such a great time chatting with you um yes, thank you please thank you guys. this is awesome no Appreciate please Please tell our constant listeners what you have coming up because uh, I, I know you're, you're busy and you got so many episodes, you got so many seasons and you, and you got new projects coming up too. Yeah, we've got uh, Disgraceland season seven is coming in January. We're launching with an episode on Graham Parsons and then season, season seven has two part episodes on Tupac, Oasis, Notorious B.I.G., The Beatles. Plus we've got a Ramones episode, Bowie, lots of heavy hitters. All those episodes are going to be available exclusively on Amazon music for free. Uh, So you can listen there, just search Disgraceland. And yeah, we've got some other projects coming down the line in 2021 that um, be able to talk about fairly shortly, but uh, just, yeah, not yet. Another reason to check in. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. would love to have you back on. Yeah. Uh, Jen, what's next over on uh, Psychoanalysis? 
Well, we are in the middle of our month on killer kids, and so we are about to drop our episode on Better Watch Out and talking about the, um, well, spoilers redacted. So check that episode out. But we also, um, we have an episode on The Hitcher that just dropped, and then we've got two comfort horror episodes coming at the end of December. We've got one with fellow loser Dan Caffrey about gremlins, and then we are also going to record a surprise Christmas Day episode on Black Christmas. So I am super excited to talk about both of those. Oh, nice, nice. And Love Black Christmas. January's theme is depression. So oh, hey. fun, and that's that, that's usually when uh, mine really reaches anthemic heights. Uh, yep, I'm going to be so. speaking from personal experience. <laughs> nice, and especially during pandemic. I can't wait. Um, <laughs> well, as for us, with the green mile behind us, we've stretched our legs, we're packed our bags, and we're ready to make our stand because those weekly recaps of CBS's All Access to Stand they're going to begin next week. And having seen the first four episodes, I can assure you this, this is going to be plenty to chat about. So uh, <laughs> expect some guests, expect some uh, some interviews, uh, expect some editorials, tons of stuff. Um, and you can always keep your eyes open on our socials because uh, we're dropping surprises left and right. Uh, like this episode, you know, you're going to f- just follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Oh, my. Uh, it's always <laughs> can't stop, won't stop with the club. And uh, which is why we're asking you also to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You know, let us know we're doing good. Give us some bright red Pennywise clown noses to your favorite, your devoted, your only Losers Club. <laughs> Until then, we'll be seeing you. And let's see if we could do this right. Over, over <laughs> long, long days. Days. <laughs> and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. Nice. Consequence Podcast Network.